Hi, everyone. You're listening to another episode of the Style Files podcast. I'm your host, Paloma Contreras, and I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome today's guest, international design star, Kit Kemp. Over the years, Kit Kemp MBE has been forging an internationally acclaimed reputation, not only for her unique hotel interiors as founder and creative director of Firmdale Hotels, but also as a successful textiles, fragrance, and homewares designer, author, and a highly respected champion of British art, craft, and sculpture. With a collection of 10 couture hotels in London and New York, Kit is celebrated for her individual and original approach to the way she transforms and arranges buildings, with a colorful and detailed storytelling in her design. She's won many awards for her designs, including House and Gardens Hotel Designer of the Year, the Crown Estates Urban Business Award, CN Traveler's Best Hotel in the World for Design, and Andrew Martin International Interior Designer of the Year. Kit has collaborated with leading global design brands such as Wedgwood, Wilton Carpets, Andrew Martin, Anthropology, Christopher Farr, Chelsea Textiles, CP Hart, Porta Romana, and Fine Cellwork, creating collections including tableware, fragrance, furniture, fabrics, and wallpaper. In 2012, Kit published her first book, A Living Space, which follows an inspiring personal voyage through the many spaces she has designed. This was followed by a second book, Every Room Tells a Story, and her third and latest book, Design Thread. Kit Kemp has been invited as guest editor for Homes and Gardens and Hospitality Design USA. In 2017, Shop Kit Kemp was launched, an online store complete with a range of products ready to buy for the home created by Kit Kemp and her design team. Spring 2019 saw Kit Kemp launch an exclusive collaboration with New York department store Bergdorf Goodman. The loft on the seventh floor was transformed into the world of Kit Kemp where her collections of furniture, fabrics, fragrance, and home accessories were brought together for the first time. In 2019, Kit launched a blog called Kit Kemp's Design Thread. The new website showcases her world of color and design, including collaborations, films, and an insight into her work and day-to-day experiences in her design studio. Kit Kemp is a trustee of Fine Cell Work and the Heritage of London Trust. Kit, it's an absolute honor to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Kit. How are you? Very well. Wonderful. So have you been in London this entire time? Um, I was in Barbados some of the time, actually when um, the pandemic started, came back to London in July and have been here ever since. Oh, wow. That's great. Well, I'm just so delighted to speak with you today because you truly are a consummate designer in every sense of the word. You imbue every element of your designs with your personal touch. Everything in your spaces and your particular hotels is typically bespoke and, you know, completely original to you and to the spaces that you're designing. I'd love to hear more about your design approach and why it's important for you to support local artists and artisans and use things that are completely unique. Yes, that's a big question. Yes. Um, thank you, because uh, I, I do like uh, bold interiors. I don't like timid interiors. Nevertheless, I don't like frantic interiors and I like them to feel very comfortable. So actually you're using all your senses, um, including touch and smell and taste. Everything comes into an interior as far as I'm concerned. But also we love color more than anything else. I think color makes you feel happy and always been much more wary of beige and white than any other color. So that's, that's where we started from. 
And we do have, a, I do have my own handwriting with design, but nevertheless, every project and every product has to have its own character and stand on its own. But I, I will admit that when you look at actually a lot of my produce and products together, they're definitely, you can actually see that it's from the same hand. Sure, there's that common thread, but as yeah. you said, each property truly has its own distinct point of view. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's true. And I mean, at the moment, uh, because of the pandemic, we're not doing as much with the hotels, but I've been terribly busy with outside projects. Uh, we've just finished um, a lighting uh, collection for um, uh, Porta Romana, which is a, a British company. And then I'm doing a carpet collection for Annie Selk, who's an American company. And, oh, sure. And then also doing um, a tea service um, and helping out uh, with the renovation of the Theatre Royal Drury Lane Theatre in London, which has been great fun. That's amazing. Well, and it speaks to the fact that you have a business that is um, very diversified in that you have obviously the design arm of the business for the interiors and the hospitality projects, but you also focus a lot on product design. And many of those products obviously end up in the spaces that you design. Could you tell us a little bit about your approach to um, product development and how, how you might approach that differently from designing a space per se? Yes, um, that's a very interesting question. Um, of course, we love textiles, and that really is the basis of many of our designs, because um, I see a fabric and get terribly excited by it and have to use it. And I guess uh, the actual product designing and the textile and wallpaper designs have come first of all because I haven't found in the marketplace something that I'm really looking for. And uh, secondly, I think, oh, gosh, it would be really fun to just try and do something with it. So it has grown organically. And if you said to me 20 years ago, just what I, would I be designing, I would be most surprised. And, um, for example, we've done uh, dinner services for Wedgwood, which is uh, an iconic British company, and then carpet designs for Wilton's, which is probably one of the oldest carpet companies in the world. And these are companies that I grew up with and knew as a child. And so to actually then be asked to do collections for them is a real honor and has been uh, something I've really enjoyed. I would imagine, yes, absolutely. Well, how would you describe your style at the end of the day? Um, my style, well, first of all, hopefully, um, it's never the end story because hopefully it's always <laughs> going somewhere else. I'd hate to think that I was standing still. But basically, I would say um, it's colourful. It looks carefree, but there's an incredible attention to detail with all my work. And I always like to feel that when you go into an interior, you don't see it all at the first time. You have to go back a second and a third time and see the various layers and maybe appreciate it better the second and third time than you do the first. Um, so it's, it's, it looks colorful and carefree, but actually um, it's anything but. <laughs> you know, you make an interesting point because I frequently say that the best interiors are those that reveal themselves to you over time. And as you mentioned, when you 
step into the room, you know, that second or third time, your eye is seeing details it may not have picked up on the first time, because, mm. you know, there are so many special details throughout the space or um, a mix of materials or patterns or whatever, whatever it may be. But I do think that, you know, having, having layers is really important and something that you obviously do quite well. And another thing that you do so well is mixing exuberant patterns and colors in a way that in my American eye feels like a very modern take on classic English style. And I can't imagine that one could accomplish such a mix without a really deft hand and an incredibly sharp eye. What advice do you have for mixing patterns and using bold colors in the way that you do so that they don't overpower? Yes. Um, again, a very interesting and really good question. Uh, the other thing about actually looking at interiors, just before I answer that, is it's looking at it in all the seasons. Mm -hmm. And where the light in the summer is so different from the winter. The light before a thunderstorm is so different from, you know, just a normal rainy day. Summer is so different from winter. And I think it, it's really interesting to get a room and to see it in all those different se seasons and how it works within those seasons. Um, I mean, I love that look. How do we put it together? Uh, first of all, I would never have more than one very large pattern in a room. Um, I, would, I would keep the focus maybe on something with a large pattern and then just add maybe uh, a medium size. You could actually add a geometric and then smaller, uh, tinier patterns. So you're not, you're not uh, confusing the eye. And then also, um, you don't need too much going on in the room. Um, and actually, although my, 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 I will use a lot of things, at the end of the day, it has to feel calm. And I'm always aware of that uh, in every room that I do. Um, I don't want it to be a riot. Uh, at the end of the day, any room that you sit in should be one that you're not looking to the door to get out of at the first opportunity. Right. Yes, that's, that's such good advice. And I agree with you about mixing patterns. It's all about the scale and not yes. having things that are of similar scale because then they end up competing with one another rather than complementing one another. Well put. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> well, Kit, I've had the pleasure of staying in a few of your hotels and um, having some lovely meals at both the Whitby and the Crosby Street Hotels in New York. I've stayed at the Ham Yard in London. And I will say that one thing that sticks out to me about these environments that you've created, as someone who travels quite a bit, and I've stayed in a lot of hotels and dined in a lot of restaurants pre-pandemic, obviously, um, it, it feels like you create an overall sensory experience more than just creating an interior. Can you speak to that a little bit? Intentional and how, what are some of the, the techniques that you use to achieve that? Because I, I'll say just from my experience, one of the things that I love most about dining in the, the um, restaurants in your hotels is that there's real linen on the tables and there's real china and those little details just elevate uh, your breakfast or any sort of mundane uh, experience that you would have any any other day but it makes it feel a little bit special how do you create the experience that people then remember i think it's so important to feel special 
I think, um, especially in a hospitality environment, it can be such a, uh, people go and, and um, for a, to dine or they'll go for an experience, they'll go for an event because it is a special occasion. And actually every day is a special occasion really. But so the details like the linen, like beautiful china, you know, drinking out of a, a really lovely glass and drinking out of beautiful uh, porcelain and china actually makes everything taste better. So I'm actually even helping the chef out. I, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So, <laughs> but the fact is that it, it should be um, a cohesive experience. So uh, with our interiors, because it's a single view, which is sort of basically my view, there's a congruency and there's a harmony which goes throughout the building. Um, and it might not be exactly to your taste, but you can understand that design thread and hopefully enjoy it. Um, and I see lots of buildings where I think, oh, they've got a top designer to do this bit of it. They've got another top designer to do another bit of it. And um, okay, so they're all fabulous, but they don't actually work together. And I think that, cohesiveness and the harmony um, and that singleness of thought should go through a building. It's a design thread. <laughs> then that's so important. You have to weave that that thread through the entirety of, of the, the space, the whole of the project, in order for it to feel like it's, it's all part of one story. I frequently, in residential interiors, I'll tell clients that you know each room sure can have its own personality and tell maybe a little bit of a different story but at the end of the day it should feel as if each space is a different chapter in one book rather than being an entire library of different books because there mm -hmm. has to be a commonality there has to be some sense of cohesiveness in order to create as you mentioned, you know, that that experience, that sense of place, but also um, just to be pleasant to the eye. I think otherwise things can get rather chaotic. Yes, I think they can get, get chaotic. Um, but uh, also it's it's so important to remember the spaces in between. Mm -hmm. And uh, I never try and forget those little sort of corridors between spaces um, that staircase going between one area and another, even inside a cupboard or in an, um, just a sort of lobby way. Um, if you can give character to those areas as well, you've made, you've made it a, an altogether bigger space and a bigger experience. And it doesn't have to be busy, uh, but the, the colours can be tonal. You can have a very strong, very bold area and then something calm that you walk through. And another thing is to always have that length of view. If you can have, um, instead of just looking at a wall of several doors, if you can have a very strong picture or something which is a focal point at the end of that room, it feels so much better than just lots of doorways going to different places, uh, if you see what I mean. <laughs> Definitely. That's so true. Mm. Well, can you take us back to the beginning of Firmdale Hotels? Which was the first hotel and how did you set about on this path to create these incredible hospitality spaces? Well, we started, um, first of all, uh, I, I had been working for an architect called Leszek Nowitzki, uh, who, who was Polish and, and actually quite a Spengali for me uh, for ideas, apart from the fact that he was a larger than life figure. 
And um, Tim, my husband-to-be, was one of the clients there. And his projects were all much smaller than everybody else's, but he used to get them done. He was very, very practical. And anyway, we finally got together. It wasn't love at first sight, but <laughs> we, we finally got married. And um, the, uh, he had um, a building in Dorset Square, uh, which was the site of the first Lord's Cricket Ground, and he managed to get the uh, freehold. And so we decided that we would try and create a small country house in London, country house hotel, um, in this leafy square. And so that is how it began. And it was a bit like Topsy. It grew and grew. Um, and, um, you know, we we started off with very small ideas and um, it had 37 rooms and nobody ever took a very small hotel like that very seriously. Um, every single room was different. And it, it really it really brought the adventure back into traveling for a lot of people who had only really decided to stay in a very large hotel like a Hilton or a Sheraton, which is fabulous. But uh, this brought a little bit more adventure into travel when you're, you know, on a great big aeroplane um, and then you arrive at the, at the far end and um, it all looks the same as it was when you were at home. <laughs> so we tried to create a sense of arrival. And um, so it actually started from there. <laughs> So it was sort of, um, I would say, maybe one of the first um, boutique hotel concepts. I guess that concept as a whole was was new to most travelers at that time. I think there was only one other, and the other was Anushka Hempel um, mm. at Blake's Hotel. Uh, sure. But she had a very different handwriting from us, and, and fabulous as well. I mean, I love her work. And, you know, I do love lots of other designers' work, even when it's not like my own. It just depends how well it's done. And uh, I just love seeing um, the way that other designers do things too. And that's why I love within all my interiors to use lots of other people's fabrics, lots of other people's weaves and uh, beautiful things. And also just using lots of art and craft. And, mm. um, oh, you know, craft was always the little sister to art. Um, and uh, nobody took it so seriously. But suddenly now it's coming into its own. And uh, for that reason, I'm very pleased. Right. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Tell us about some of um, maybe the, the craftspeople and artisans and the unique things that you've incorporated into some of your more recent projects or maybe the more memorable um, mm -hmm. pieces of craft that you've been able to incorporate. Yes. Um, well, there, there are, I'm just thinking of a couple of people, actually. Martha Freud, who does wonderful porcelain pots for us and at the Whitby Hotel at the, in the, at the very back wall in the orangery uh, we've got about uh, 47 wonderful pots that are lit from within and they're all the landmark buildings and bridges of New York not all of them but a lot of them and um, so lit from within they look absolutely beautiful and Martha is, is a wonderful ceramicist um, but she doesn't want to be bothered with all the, the technical aspects of getting her porcelain to light from within and everything else like that. So very, that's one example of actually taking a, a beautiful artist craftswoman and um, letting, allowing her just to create, but we can look after all the uh, technical aspects for her so she can just concentrate on what she's doing. And uh, what I love about craft is that 
um, it can be very anonymous and very often it can go from grandfather to father to son to daughter. It's often very much in a family. Um, and that there's one, there's a, a wonderful potter called Dylan Bowen, and he said, My grandfather's a potter, my father's a potter, I'm a potter, my wife is a potter, we just pot. And I just think that's so wonderful to have that simplicity. And you know what? If you asked him to do 10 pots all the same, they would all look different because that's the wonderful thing about craft that made by hand look that just gives it that individuality. Um, and uh, another great person that we've used is Daniel Reynolds. And he does very large pots that stand um, on their own in very big rooms because very often ceramics can get lost within a room. Um, but he also does um, mobiles as well. So the Calder-esque mobiles. And he's just gone from strength to strength. So, of course, I can't really afford to use him anymore. But <laughs> then, then I have to go and find somebody else. Uh, so, I mean, I'm just talking about pottery now, but there are so many different aspects of craft um, with cat makers, you know, that are weaving mm -hmm. beautiful cloths, um, furniture makers, and, of course, artists themselves, both contemporary and um, very traditional. Um, and the other wonderful thing is that they're every age group. It, you don't just have to be young. You don't have to have just gone to the best art school in the country. You can have found your medium much later in life. And it's rather lovely to think that people in their 50s and 60s are suddenly just, you know, coming into their own and making wonderful uh, wall hangings or beautiful pieces of art. Um, and um, so everybody, everybody has their day. That's so wonderful. Well, for those listening, can you share a bit about how the process of design varies from hotel design to private residential design? Is it Does it feel like it's a completely different animal to design a residence versus a hospitality project? Mm. A hospitality project is normally much larger. So it's mm -hmm. um, it, it, it spans a much larger time. Uh, we've done projects which are taking something which would be maybe an old dental warehouse and then suddenly turning it into a hotel, or not suddenly, it takes several years. And um, then, for example, the Whitby and the Crosby in New York, those are both new builds, so of course they take a much longer time. Um, so I have much longer to cogitate <laughs> and decide over what I'm going to do. And sometimes it's harder when you've got a completely sort of blank space than it is looking at architecturally an interesting building and then redoing that. Um, so uh, very often when it's, uh, when it's a residence, there is already a residence there and you can walk around it and get the feel of it and get the feel of the, uh, the person who owns the house um, and then build from there and build it around their lifestyle. Whereas with a hotel, it's much more what the owner wants to uh, or what I want to uh, gain from that. And then also from a hotel behind the scenes point of view, how does the whole thing flow? How do you get your housekeeping uh, sort of sheets and blankets right down to the basement? How do you make sure that everything is soundproof so that one event isn't heard in another room? Mm. Um, but apart from that, when I start talking about my interiors, there's very little difference because I would never have in a hotel something that I wouldn't have in my own home. 
And that very much goes down to the feel of, of, of fabrics. You know, I, I want to sit and feel in, in fabrics that, that touch and feel so wonderful as well as looking fabulous. Sure, definitely. I would imagine, especially in a, in a hospitality environment where you have to really stand up to a lot of use. Yes. Now, that's another thing, because I'm always looking at, at how things last, because, I mean, silk might look very nice on a seat cover, but it will only last, you know, five minutes and it will shred and, and fade. So I'm looking for a much stronger weave with, with a higher what we call Martindale or rub test um, so that uh, in three years time, it's going to look pretty much the same as it does on day one. And you always want to feel that you're the first person in that room or in that bathroom. <laughs> right. Certainly. There's nothing worse than a, a hotel interior that feels a little bit tired or mm. shabby. I certainly experienced that even and I, I won't say where or who, but very mm. nice property where the restaurant may look very different at night under dim light than it does in daylight at breakfast. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. And I, I hate that. I really, um, yeah, I just want my places to feel and look good all the time. And even when I'm going around all the time, you'll suddenly go into a room and you think, oh gosh, you know, it's just kind of gone. It's almost like overnight, the light or the something doesn't look quite right. And then when we redo rooms, we do everything. We don't just, because I find that if I just change a headboard or I change a balance or something like that, then it, 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 it takes the others out of sync, everything else in the room. So we almost like to start completely afresh with a room. That's so true. Well, it's that design thread you mentioned. You know, it all has yes. to, to flow. Once you start to pull it apart, it all falls apart. <laughs> um, well, you know, it's so funny that you say that because there are those of the mindset that I certainly don't agree with who say that where they stay doesn't matter because you don't spend that much time in your hotel. And I'm quite the opposite. I'm actually a bit of a hotel snob in that it's really important to me to stay somewhere that's beautiful and that's going to inspire me where there are details that I can take in and sort of continue to train my eye to see things that I may not have been exposed to before as a creative person and you know that level of comfort those details the service it's all paramount and so incredibly important to my overall experience on any business trip or vacation or wherever my travels take me I, I definitely feel that a hotel has a massive impact on one's overall memory of a trip. Yes, I think so too. I, I think that um, a, a hotel experience, there isn't one aspect that, can, that can't work. It can spoil the whole experience. You can stay in a lovely room and then if it takes, you know, sort of over an hour and a half for your breakfast to come, that spoils it. If your laundry doesn't come back uh, uh, when it should, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, all those things have to be working in unison and working together. Uh, but as far as the interiors are concerned, I absolutely uh, am inspired by other people's interiors and I love to see what other people are doing and uh, I get really excited when I see things that I haven't seen before or something, just a small detail that inspires mm -hmm. me and then I, you know, I want to try and do it well and that's sort of how we grow. Exactly, that couldn't be more true. Has the pandemic changed the way that you think about hotel design in any way? Are you having to maybe uh, think about some new considerations that have to be layered in as a result of the pandemic and things changing? I think, I think you do want to feel 
uh, as if you're entering a hospital. I don't think you want to feel as if you're entering a clinic. Mm -hmm. So you kind of want to get away from that sort of uh, massive sort of feel that you're going to get told off wherever you stand, wherever you go. If it's um, So you want to make an experience which is seamless, but at the same time safe. Um, and it's been great because we can do so much outdoor right up to now. But now we're all going to be going indoors again. And I gather that, you know, there's indoor dining in New York, um, which is starting any second now, and the same in London. And it just means that we have more gaps and more space around the tables, etc., which is really lovely. And now you can see my floors a lot more. You can see lovely <laughs> floors <laughs> and the gaps between the tables and uh, lovely linen and um, yes yeah, sometimes just beautiful lighting um, so uh, do you know I really don't mind and then when you're in your room you should feel very very safe I don't know what they're doing about minibars and stuff like that because I do love my minibars I hope they're not going to try and decide that you shouldn't have one of those right I, th I think some hotels have been doing away with them yeah, I know. That's awfully sad, don't you mm -hmm. think? I do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's part of the fun. Yeah, exactly. What do you feel is the key to a successful relationship between client and designer, whether it's hospitality or a private homeowner? I think you just got to, from the word go, know exactly what the guidelines are. Um, I think that you have to, because I think... Um, either disrespect or distrust comes when the client is expecting something and then and then there, there's some disconnect between the two. Um, so I think if from the onset you you have you lay down your criteria and your and your guidelines and stick to it. And if there is any deviation, then it's better just to be completely straightforward and honest from the word go. Um, and um, you know, it, it, it's, it's quite interesting how do you charge, for example, do you put a large design fee or do you, and then let uh, all the fabrics come in at trade or do you put a, a, a service charge on that and the handling? I mean, as long as, as your client knows exactly where you're coming from, I think that's okay. But otherwise, uh, you can run into problems because it always starts off like a honeymoon and then it becomes mm -hmm. a nightmare halfway through it <laughs> it's true I, I you know that's a common theme that I hear from a lot of designer friends and guests that I've had on the podcast just really speaking to the importance of transparency and se mm. setting and managing expectations yes yes I mean the other thing is you know you can say if, you, if you've got a client that wants to get back in their property in six or eight months and you can say okay in six or eight months I think we can achieve this uh, but if you want it to go on longer, then we could do this. So you also need to give alternatives. And a lot of it is to do with building time and um, just what is involved. I think, I think you know, that the, the process of building, I've, I've said before that you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. And to have the builder in your home is immediately going to be incredibly disruptive and people um, want to get them out as soon as possible. But if they've got a, if they actually want so much done, that isn't possible. <laughs> you know, so it's being realistic. <laughs> right. Mm. I'm sorry so, if that, I hope that sounds reasonable. <laughs> no, it certainly does. It's true. It's true. I, I'm a firm believer in 
maybe taking more of an under promising and over delivering approach rather than the latter. I'm not going to promise that we can get things done in Mm -hmm. an insufficient amount of time if I know that it's not possible just to appease the client, because ultimately, then I'm just setting everyone up for disappointment. I mean, there's this wonderful word, which I've just heard called glamouflage. And I think glamouflage is a really interesting idea, because very often, you can get away with um, something, if you can sort of um, uh, camouflage it in a very glamorous way. And uh, very often that will do. Uh, you can deceive the eye in, in many ways if you've got um, you know, a darkened room or if you've got uh, a floor finish that you don't like or an acoustics problem. Sometimes there's a way around it, which uh, in an ideal world, you would do something but in a not ideal world, when you've got less time and a lot more to achieve, you can glamouflage. <laughs> I love that. I've learned something new today. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I love that. That's so clever. Well, what do you think have been some of the, the most impactful changes or, or challenges that designers have had to face over the last 10 years? Obviously, the industry has changed tremendously. Clients have access to more resources than ever before. Having something be solely to the trade is sort of a moot concept at this point because there is so much access. Is that a challenge that you face? I think you can almost see too much. And I think that can be very, very confusing. I think sometimes you just have to go back to basics. You have to go back to an old scrapbook where you've put down fabulous pictures that you just love, you know, not just have everything on screen. Sometimes just going out, turning a page is really nice. And uh, when there's so much coming at you all the time, you just want to go back to the things that you absolutely know that you love. And so you'll, it'll start to reflect. You'll start saying the same thing over and over. And you'll say, oh, yeah, I do love that. I do love that. And then you can go in and pinpoint exactly the things that you really want to achieve within a space and the things that you really love, things that you want to spend your life with, really. And I'm just talking about simple things like, do you prefer wood to plastic? <laughs> do you prefer stone to glass? Um, uh, do you prefer you know, sort of coloured clays to uh, shiny paint surfaces or tiles? I mean, just things like that. Um, so if you get your real basics right, the rest doesn't matter quite so much and it will just follow on from there quite naturally and quite organically. Absolutely. And I think going through that exercise is valuable in many ways because it gives you more insight into what the client may not be able to articulate in a concise way about what they see in their mind's eye or what they're drawn to. It also helps them to discover more about their own style or visual DNA. And it creates a sense of a shared experience, which ultimately leads to that trust between client and designer and that, um, that relationship that we've talked about. Yes, that, you know, that, that's so true, isn't it? And it's a very growing thing. I mean, I know when I go to the hairdresser, I think I know what I want to achieve, but I don't know the technical terms of saying it. And then, you know, if I show them a picture or something, they'll say, oh, that's what you mean, that's so-and-so. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and I say, oh yeah, that's it. But sometimes <laughs> the client or whoever you're talking to, um, 
yes, they can't articulate exactly what they want to achieve. And sometimes they don't even know. The other things that, uh, you know, between man and wife, there are often disagreements. Is how can you get the two still talking, still talking to one another, let alone anything else? <laughs> oh dear, and not be the person that's coming between them. Mm-hmm. It's true. We wear many hats as designers. I mean, that's a fact for sure. We um, are often in the role of therapist or psychologist. Mm-hmm. There's so much psychology and just understanding to deliver news and when to deliver that news and how to maybe spin it in a positive way Mm. um and you're right I mean oftentimes I will say more often than not the in my experience the wife tends to drive the design process we actually have a project right now which is highly unusual in which the wife is really not involved at all except for Mm. some practical matters about safety and things like that pertaining to their children but the husband is the one who's really leading the charge on the design which is really Mm. fun actually and different than anything we've ever experienced most often than not the husbands tend to just agree with the wife so that the wife is happy but every now and then we do get a husband who's more opinionated and it can be a challenge when one of Mm. them loves something and the other one vehemently hates it and just is completely opposed and finding that sort of perfect line to toe in the middle can be a challenge. Yes, I think so. But I I always remember my mother-in-law, who actually I absolutely adored, but she was so clever because at the beginning of our relationship, when uh, we both had quite strong ideas of how our own home should look, and I remember her saying to uh, Tim, uh, she said, darling, let your wife do the interiors you look after the wine cellar and let your wife do all the choosing. I mean, little did she know that our wine cellar was a sort of sideboard with really cheap, one bottle of cheap wine on it. <laughs> but I loved that whole idea. And he said, oh, all right. And, and you know, he was learning from his, from his mom and she was fantastic and really helpful to me. <laughs> That's so great. That's so great. Well, then he was occupied he had his task and could focus on that and let you focus on the interiors yeah he could actually see that in fact he was going to get more fun you know in the long run on that side than just worrying about carpets and curtains right (laughs) where do you turn for inspiration what inspires you um well i'm i'm often going to um exhibitions at the moment the uh, royal academy in london is just starting their summer show today believe it or not um it, and it's autumn winter um and um i i get to hear and see so many young designers um my team are quite young around me and i love it when they come up with new ideas even sometimes they're almost apologetic and I say wow but that's amazing let's hear more about it um and um there is so much talent around and when when I'm looking at sometimes I'm doing things like judging uh sort of the best fabrics that have come out that year and so many of these large fabric houses they they haven't got new designs they're just recoloring their old ones and I'm so ancient now I can remember and but I say to them, you mustn't do that. There are so many fabulous young designers that are pouring out of um, our schools with so many good designs and they just need a bit of help and a bit of mentoring to actually get it right. Um, 
So I, I am actually meeting and seeing people all the time, and, and that's one of the joys of, of my job, really, um, watching people sort of turn from their little chrysalis into a butterfly and um, flying away. That's so wonderful. What are some of your indispensable design elements? Dispensable design elements. Indispensable. Right. Indispensable design <laughs> elements. Right. You're okay. like dispensable. Why would I want dispensable <laughs> design elements? <laughs> um, what do you mean, like sort of really comfortable sofa and um, a good well, reading light, or, or what do you mean? I mean, it can be tangible or intangible. The things that you feel, even though every space that you design has its own personality, what are those tried and true things that you feel work anywhere? Right. Um, I find that a really hard question <laughs> because I, at hard and fast rules, um, I always feel are going to get broken. Mm -hmm. And when I'm going out and about and I'm looking at things, um, I, the trouble is that you can get really stuck in your ways. And I can see so many sort of designs that are never moving on. So I never really have a hard and fast rule. Um, um, no, I don't. I can't think of really good hard and I think fast that's a great answer. That's perfectly acceptable. And I think <laughs> it speaks you. to the fact, I think it, it speaks to the fact that, you know, you are someone who really works uh, with very bespoke details. And you've spoken so much about your passion for craft and artisanship and all these other things. And so I think as a result of that, it would be very evident that, you know, you're not repeating things all that much. So I think it's a fine answer. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> oh, dear. Are you currently working on, on any, excuse me, on anything that you're particularly excited about? Well, there's a there's a, a project just outside New York, which is really exciting because uh, it's got a building program as well as a, a, a huge house and uh, landscaping with a garden and um, really, really fabulously young clients. So I'm really excited about that. Um, I'm really excited about working with the Theatre Royal Drury Lane because there's so much tradition and yet the, it's so contemporary. So um, I can look up um, uh, and see with the history, which is going right back to uh, Charles I, second, third, um, uh, 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 you know, this, what's happened there. And then I can also look at the wonderful uh, mythical characters and their designs and what they looked like on the stage. And then very, uh, very sort of famous people like even Pavlova, the, the ballet dancer, they have all performed at the Theatre World Dory Lane. And that is a huge sort of historical background to work from. But at the, name, the same time, it, it has to have a very sort of contemporary and, and modern look and no pastiche of the past. So I'm really enjoying that. What's more, it's the most fabulous space. So, wow. I actually stood on the stage and I thought, thank goodness, but... Um, I'm not uh, an actual actress because I would just freeze on the spot. I mean, it's huge when you stand out there, really frightening. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm excited to see what you do with it. I'm sure you'll breathe um, a new spirit into the space for sure. Yeah. And actually, at the moment, there's nothing happening. The theatres aren't working in London right. and it's probably the same on Broadway. Um, so I, I, I just hope they come back. Um, uh, in, in full flight and, and there's lots of work for everybody because at the moment it's looking a bit sad. 
Right. I do too. How are things in London overall? Well, overall, um, there's, there's, it, they're actually sort of starting to lock down a bit more again because mm. the uh, rates were, were climbing up a bit. I mean, I, I think they're probably being very, very safe. Um, rather than uh, and making everybody feel uh, very alert um, to what could happen. But you know what? We just need this wretched inoculation and vaccine. That's what we need as soon as possible. I agree. Mm. Kit, is there anything that people might be surprised to learn about you? Um, surprised to learn about me? Um, um, I hate very small spaces. I don't really like lifts. <laughs> I get slightly claustrophobic. <laughs> um, I am, so I always try and make my lifts and, uh, or they're elevators, aren't they? Sorry, uh, as interesting as possible so that I don't have to think I'm standing within it. I can look at things around me. Mm. Um, and uh, I'm mad about uh, horses and uh, equine things, and I'm mad about dogs. Um, and they always find themselves into in paintings and all kinds of things that I'm doing. <laughs> um, and um, also, um, I might be scared of, of closed in spaces, but I'm always seeming to climb things. And I've been climbing a few church spires, only on the inside, not on the outside, <laughs> <laughs> with um, Heritage of London Trust, which is um, a charity in London that um, have sort of watches of money so that they can um, restore beautiful old buildings or lost pieces of London. And that very often means that I'm going really up high into church steeples and looking around like that, which is very exciting. <laughs> I'm sure you can get, you're getting a bird's eye view and simultaneously working to restore some architectural treasures. Absolutely, yeah. If you could go back in time, is there a piece of advice that you would give your younger self? My younger self? Um, I would say that um, don't listen to everybody's advice. <laughs> Just go for it. Um, I, I, all the time I'm hearing people say, well, when I can do CAD, I'm going to be a designer. When I can, you know, uh, have finished this degree and da da da, and I always say, just get on and do it. Just get on and actually just look around you and put it together, um, because so often there's always a reason why you shouldn't do something. And also, um, just don't let people uh, tell you what you should be doing when you're only halfway through a project, because you need to see it to the end. I mean, sometimes the colour on the wall won't look great, but when it's got everything else in the room, it all is in imbalance. Um, so, uh, so just stick by your original idea and by something you believe in and see it through to the end. Have a bit of staying power. That's great advice. Confidence and conviction. Mm. I think yeah. often well, you, you we... said it a lot better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just summarizing what you said. I loved what you said. And it's very true. Oftentimes, I think we can sort of get in our own heads about things and um, let the seeds of doubt be planted or maybe yeah. listen to outside voices a little bit too much, but it's an, it's an important reminder to really trust one's own intuition and see things through to the end. And if you have to make a change at that point, great, but at least you, hmm. you've executed, you know, your plan. Hmm. Wonderful. Well, as we wrap up Kit, I'll ask you one last question. What is currently giving you hope in the world of design or otherwise? giving me hope. Do you know what? It's the bounce back. 
I think that designers and uh, uh, especially actually New York as well, because I know that better than anywhere else in the States, um, that wonderful ability to bounce back and it doesn't matter what happens to you. Um, I know that a few weeks later, it will look as if it's never happened. Um, and I love that resilience that uh, we have. And I think designers are exactly the same. I think just give us a chance. And if you give us our head a bit, we can uh, really achieve so much. And uh, as soon as we get all our confidence back, um, it's full speed ahead. And I, I don't want the whole world to look kind of provincial. I want the whole world to look really design conscious and pushing forward and being exciting again. And I, I hope that, that that's what's, what's going to happen very soon. That was interior designer, product designer, and author Kit Kemp. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Be sure to visit us online at polomacontreras.com under the podcast tab, where you can find more episodes featuring inspiring conversations with creatives. You can listen directly on our website or subscribe via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the style files, please consider spreading the word and leaving us a positive rating or review. It will only take a few seconds of your time and will make a big difference for us. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.